Welcome. I'm honored to share a bit of your time today. If you're watching on YouTube right now, don't go anywhere. The video will start soon. But don't forget to click like and subscribe so you can get updates on our future episodes. All right, well, you're going to love today's guest. I'm talking with Associate Professor Dr. Yenisel Cruz Almeida. She heads up the Phenotyping and Assessment in Neuroscience, or PAIN, lab here at the University of Florida. This is the second of our four-part series introducing you to the University of Florida Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence. So of course, we'll discuss Dr. Cruz Almeida's role as Director of Training and Career Development here at Price. And we kind of try to dive into her diverse training and background and current interests, but there's just a lot there. Her continually growing body of work is just too much to cover in one episode, so we're gonna have to have her back on again. We left some on the table. She's brilliant, her enthusiasm is infectious. So let's just get down to it. Eric, cue the intro. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. So there, there are multiple levels, obviously, and you're crushing it, clearly. Um, Thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. But, uh, you know, so you're associate director at Price. You're uh, an associate professor with tenure. You're the director of your lab, and we'll get to that in a minute. But so there, there are all of these, these titles and positions that you, that you have to juggle. Um, so what, how do you manage? How do you manage all the, the roles? Like, I feel like you have to wear multiple hats. Yeah, and I think that's what, um, those are the choices you make. And, um, you know, being in an academic institution gives you the opportunity to wear many different hats. And mm -hmm. I think your passion um, your drive can make you choose and add on hats. So, you know, for example, my, my professorship position is, you know, we have to um, mentor, do research, um, and do service to our society, to the university. But then within those, we can, um, in my case, commit ourselves more towards, you know, developing and mentoring others. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one hat that, that comes with being associate director of price. The focus is really on, um, getting all the educational opportunities, career opportunities that can be, um, enhanced towards our postdoctoral trainees, mm -hmm. as well as we have a lot of faculty that have undergrad and other types of trainees. And so really getting as many opportunities for them to be exposed and know, you know, for their future, what the career can hold, what they can do um, and support in every individual's trajectories. So as the director of your lab, you already mentor your staff, whether it's I mean, everybody from from you know, volunteer research assistants on up to Ph.D. students. So, but you've taken on an additional role in the training and development mentorship of everybody in the center in a way that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a trainee. Um, so how do you, <laughs> how do you manage that with all of your, your academic interests? Because you've got a, a, a pretty diverse background, I would say, um, you know, you got all, all three degrees from Miami, correct? From University of Miami? Um, no. So my undergraduate was here okay. at the University of Florida. Okay. And then, um, because of, um, 
basically my now husband. <laughs> I uh, transferred to the University of Miami to finish my master's. Okay. And then um, went into my PhD at the University of Miami. Oh, and so walk through the pathway as far as your focus on the, the three degrees. Yeah, so my, um, my undergraduate was undergraduate um, microbiology and cell science and immunology. Mm -hmm. And so I was re very interested in virology, so viruses, bacteria, all of that. So um, totally not what you're doing right now, essentially? No, okay. not at all, not <laughs> at all. Um, and so, you know, as I was doing that, I got very actually excited a long time ago by the Ebola virus and, and really all those things. I thought that's what I was going to be studying and going abroad to study that. Um, and then I thought, well, I guess I need to learn a little bit more about public health and sort of the application of, of that knowledge from that microbiology and virology mm -hmm. background. So that's when I um, basically started my master's in public health. Then, like I mentioned, I met my husband, um, ended up to deciding to go to the University of Miami to pursue that work. And then I started working, um, doing research in spinal cord injury where very specifically it was pain after spinal cord injury and my work that work impacted basically the rest of my life uh, at that moment i decided and realized that you know um, really understanding chronic pain to to actually relieve it was the goal um, that i've been really searching for my whole life um, individuals with spinal cord injury i'm not sure if Basically, it's not so common. You can see that they can't walk, mm -hmm. um, but there are other things that impact their life. And so one of those unseen things is chronic pain. Uh, often, you know, they weren't asked if they had pain. And, and when you actually ask them what bothers you the most about your condition, it wasn't necessarily not walking. Mm -hmm. It was actually having in many of them, and, and this was data coming out at the time in the early 2000s by my PhD mentor at the University of Miami, Miami Project to Cure Paralysis, that um, it was their pain. Mm. And, and often I had individuals, you know, say, can I just, you know, I think I want to get, get my spinal cord completely cut so I don't feel pain. I, I rather, I don't care about walking. Wow. I just care about not having this experience. And so doing quantitative sensory testing, for example, in these individuals, and the fact that I would ask them to just, you know, take your shirt off to be able to test them. Mm -hmm. And that would make them cry. because the Just the touch, shirt brushing answers. Just, you know, like that. And so, you know, many of them very young. And, and the life they could have, it was really impacted by this. And so it's something that you can't see. Mm. And, and at that moment, doing that research, I was about a year into my master's. So I, if, if, may I interject just really quick. So when you started there, were, did you go in more interested in the functional aspect of spinal cord injury? Or was it, was it pain from the get-go? So actually, to be completely honest, I was looking for a job mm -hmm. so that I could do some public health work while <laughs> I was finishing my master's. Mm -hmm. And so the lab that um, had an opening and where I applied... Um, was that lab studying pain after spinal cord injury. And so it was funny because I, I always <laughs> remember the interview where I'm like, what do you mean you study pain? <laughs> Can you be a little more specific? I, I don't understand. But, but I think a lot of our audience would agree that, that that's pretty common. I mean, I, I've, I've discussed this, and I don't know if, if, we, if it really came up in, in our last episode, but with my background, 
we used pain as a variable, self-reported pain, um, but we didn't we didn't look at any quantitative sensory testing. We didn't we didn't use measures that that show how people experience pain individually. Really, we were just interested in does this hurt when I poke here? Does this hurt when you do this? And that's about it. Um, but I think also the fact that chronic pain is not something that you see, that right. you wear on your body, right? That people can say, oh, you have chronic pain or you don't. Um, and, and to think, wait, also pain, everybody has pain. So it's normal to mm -hmm. have pain or, you well, know. So did you see that with the with the spinal cord participants? And, and I guess we, you know, they were, they were being treated. It was the College of Medicine at this point. Now you're yes, the lab University here, so. of Miami School of Medicine. Yeah. So these... Uh, these patients, were they aware that their sensation of pain had changed? Or was that the new normal for them, but it was also miserable? So let me tell you, Josh, when I accepted that job at the University of Miami, um, there was basically very little work. Um, and most of it, again, was coming out of that lab at the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. Um, so at that moment, I remember taking calls in the lab of people saying, can you please send me some of the papers that show the surveys where we can have pain? And so the, the dogma at the time was if you had an injury that you couldn't feel, you couldn't move, you have motor, so, you know, no, no motor function, then the sensory or pain sensation was not possible. And so the doctors were sending people to psychologists, to psychiatrists, and say it's all in your head because your spinal cord is cut. Right. And if ascending motor control is not going up or down, why would sensory? Right. And so, so at com that time, compar comparable to people that, that come back from battle, for example, and have, have lost a limb, but they say, oh, I've got pins and needles in my hand. But they, they've had, you know, they're an amputee from the elbow down, for example. So that, that kind of phantom pain, same situation. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And, and so and it was very, you know, debilitating. So at that time, again, it was, it was just the, the bare beginning of, of that field getting established by my mentor. And I remember seeing, so, you know, the Miami Project is very big on um, really spinal cord injury. And, and really a lot of it was motor at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so my mentor was the only one working in the pain aspect. But, um, but the people, again, that would come to participate in the research um, from all over the world, basically. Uh, this is, you know, a very unique place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, you ask them, and many of them, you know, sometimes would, I would even say, well, why, why don't you tell, you know, do you tell people that you have pain? And they're like, why would I? Like, only if they ask. Mm -hmm. So it, it, was, it was very interesting. And to me, it made a huge impact in, in my life. Well, and so now you're the director of the pain lab. And I want to make sure I get this right. So I'm going to go through it slowly. Phenotyping and assessment in neuroscience. In neuroscience. And so this lab, obviously, uh, because you are part of Price, is, is, is underpriced, but you have a, a pretty wide scope of interest in your work that's ongoing and that you've produced from the lab. So before we do any of that, and I warned you that we would probably have to do this, let's rewind to, you know, like ninth grade biology class and just start with the phenotyping. Because neuroscience, people, people get that assessment, that's fine. Phenotyping. So this is, this is central to a lot of your work in pain and otherwise. What is phenotyping? So from a very basic biology, right, background, mm -hmm. um, really phenotyping comes from the expressed um, behavior, expressed 
patterns that you would see. And, and it really came from genotyping, meaning gene-derived, so DNA-based, um, leading to specific uh, functional um, phenotype or, okay. or behavior, performance, something that that was and it's it's really you know has expanded now a lot more as to as to what it means and what it encompasses it really encompasses at the moment uh, just a whole set of behavior that we can measure and we can see mm-hmm. in research and but you you so you compared it to to genotype phenotype and genotype so this is these are things that are, are not at least directly inherited like so so when we think of, of genes you think of well a little bit of your, your parents' genes from either side, and that combines to make you what your eye color, height, whatever. Um, so the phenotyping is, is, is not entirely different from that, though, right? It, it's, it's indirectly affected by your genotype. Am I correct in saying? So it, part of it comes, obviously, from your genotype. And, and the, you know, if you look at my lab, the multidimensionality, and we were saying the wide type of research that I do, mm-hmm. it's really because a phenotype is actually an expression of so many underlying uh, mechanisms or, or things that can give you the same or different phenotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, my thought of phenotypes are more to identify specific characteristics in specific groups of people really to get to more personalized understanding of what is happening. Uh, And that could be response to treatment. That could be future prediction. That could be outcomes. That could be mechanisms that are similar in this particular group of people. Um, so it, you know, we've done phenotyping with respect to pain, self-reported pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did it. I started in spinal cord injury, um, as well as psychological pain phenotyping, where, and again, we've done this in spinal cord injury. We've done it in neosteoarthritis. We've actually also seen it in uh, healthy individuals across a wide age range. Um, and we could do, you know, we've done also in relation to quantitative sensory testing, so specifically experimental induced pain. Yeah, let's let's spend a, a minute on that if we could, because I sat down with uh, with Dr. Roger Fillingham for our uh, for our, our primary episode, our first episode for this podcast, and we talked so much about pain in general that we really didn't spend much time on pain assessment. So, so let's talk about quantitative sensory testing and, and maybe if you could share with us some, some of the ways that it's tested and, and what it means. I know yeah, it's a, it's a, that's, a, that's a big topic to, to take a bite out of, but, um, but start anywhere you like. Because and, and well, and, and, you have to remember a lot of people that are, are, are listening now are very unfamiliar. Just like you were when you, when you started that job, you said, wait, pain, pain research, what, what is that? I was the same way. So I'm going to assume that at least one person out there listening is not going to have any idea what we're talking about. So I'm sure you could start pretty much wherever. Yeah, no, and I was thinking um, a little bit of, you know, just even uh, the pain experience, right? How multidimensional it is and and really the the core. um, And I I think you may have talked about definition, uh, the actual definition by the International Association for the Study of Pain. But what does that really mean, right, when we're talking about the multidimensional pain? Mm-hmm. So you actually have multiple components to pain, and that's kind of what makes it complicated because 
you have, for example, what we call sensory components. And sensory components allow the detection of a painful or potentially damaging type of stimulus. Mm -hmm. You have motor components that really allow you for you to move away from that stimulus. You have cognitive components. Those cognitive components allow you to actually assess, is that something good? Is that something bad? And then you have emotional components. And these are all intertwined into that core, what pain is. The emotional components, again, allow you to put emotions to it so that you remember it mm -hmm. later, right? If you need to for good or bad. And so, but ultimately it's for survival. And so that doesn't get separated regardless, like whether it's chronic pain or, um, um, or, or acute pain. Pain mm -hmm. is that. Um, and so, you know, in, in when we do quantitative assessments is to be able to get a handle on, okay, how do we know, how can we compare people? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, if we don't know what is happening, if they may have uh, an injury or um, what type of injury, some injuries are different, there's different severities. And so if you just ask people how painful do you, you know, how, how much pain do you have right now? The response could be very, very uh, dependent mm -hmm. on a lot of things that we have no control over. Right. So we use what we call quantitative sensory testing, um, which actually is, is used in many other sensory modalities to be able to assess what is the response to the same stimulus mm -hmm. and see the variability that we know exists across individuals. So the same level of pain stimulus, you see some people rate it more painful, others rate it less painful. And actually some people, you know, the spectrum is all the way, if we say zero, no pain to 10, the most intense pain imaginable, you'll get zero to 10 mm -hmm. representative across that whole scale. Um, and then I'm thinking, I'm like, why did I go on the, I don't know why I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, the... <laughs> so I, I do want to, I want to linger on that for just a, a moment. So it, it, the way you're describing it, it seems like because there's so much individuality in pain and how it's experienced, really you're, you're turning oranges into apples so you can compare apples to apples across and, and, and make predictions. And so, but I, I, as you're going down through the list of all of the components that, that contribute to this, this subjective, this highly subjective experience of pain, I have to think back to, you know, when I was younger, a car nut, I still am, you know, but, but, uh, you know, when, whenever I would talk to my dad or my stepdad about, oh, yeah, I love this car, blah, 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 it has this, this, and this. And it seems like the more gadgets, more features the car had, the more both of these guys, you know, whether it be my dad or my stepdad, are both going, oh, yeah, no. So, wait, no, it's got this, this, and this. And the way they look at it is, that's more stuff to break, more stuff to go wrong. So when you're trying to figure out why somebody is experiencing pain, there could be any number of, of reasons why that pain experience is different from the next person. Yeah, and that, that gets me to so talking about the different components. If you think about each of those components driving, and in mm -hmm. some people, they could be equally driving the experience. In other people, there could be more components that are driving such as let's say emotional or mm -hmm. movement fear and so you have the motor part driving or even the sensory if there are issues in 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 those um domains and and so that's also um i was using that to to really explain why i use a wide variety 
of things that I assess because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a psychologist. So my PhD is in neuroscience and I actually did basic science um, and then most of it human work um, on the nervous system. But we cannot ignore, for example, the emotional mm-hmm. component, emotional aspects that are very much part of the pain experience. And, and those things are actually uh, sculpted by our brain circuitry. So mm-hmm. the fact that any, you know, you have pain stimulation, it goes up to the brain to regions that, again, are not only sensory, they're not only motor, they're cognitive as well as emotional. Mm-hmm. And all together gives you that sculpted experience. And so one thing that we discussed, I, I brought up the, the Dr. Fillinger episode, one thing that, that he had, had mentioned and, and kind of detailed for us is how the experience of pain can actually shape and change some of the components that lead to the overall experience. So with some of the, the, the individual pieces that you're mentioning, do they influence one another as well? I mean, do you see that? Cause we, yeah, because we, yeah, we were talking about how pain can change physical components of the brain, for example, physical characteristics. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, for speaking for myself, I think that's what I like about conceptualizing phenotyping across all those domains to be able to actually identify where there's an opportunity for actual interventions, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you can think of cognitive interventions, um, more psychologically based interventions, uh, motor directed interventions, right? So, um, so really, I think that's the way that I've conceptualized it, even though, like I said, I'm not a clinical psychologist, um, but that's why I've published, because it's important to understand mm-hmm. how the psychological experience, how the, you know, also, I mean, you, your expertise in more of the motor exercise stuff, which is not mine, mm-hmm. um, but it's really, I think it's important to be able to really tap into all those different components. Yeah, I feel like you have to, you have to, in order to do, to do due diligence as a scientist, you need to have enough understanding of a specific discipline that's not yours, that's outside of your expertise, to, if nothing else, be able to identify who really knows more than you do <laughs> and to know what questions to ask right. them. Right? Right. <laughs> but so how much of, of so we, when you're talking about, first of all, neuroscience, I, there are some neuroscientists that I know that say there is no mind. There's only brain. It's only the brain. And then, of course, that's the exact opposite of, of clinical, well, not the exact opposite, but, but very far on the other end of the spectrum from clinical psychologists, for example, who are, are, are oftentimes very interested in the mind. And, yeah, there's, there's circuitry and, and there, there's chemical signaling and all that, and that's different. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the perceptions and the behavior and so on and so forth. So I guess regardless of, of how much you learn in those other areas, how important is it to approach something as complex as pain from not just a multidisciplinary, but interdisciplinary approach where you're collaborating with others. So I'm going to answer that in a different way. I'm just setting so, up a future collaboration so the between f- us. <laughs> <laughs> so I am, I'm actually fortunate, I think, that I wasn't trained necessarily in a, in a very specific type of, of um, you know, discipline, such mm-hmm. as psychology or, or something. You know, I was really, again very neuroscience, molecular and cellular biology. And so for me, for example, when you're talking about mind versus brain circuitry and all these things, well, actually the networks, the, the 
all the connectivity, how things are going, working together, mm -hmm. that's the mind. And, and really, if we understand that, that's how you understand the perception, the, the cognitive understanding of the processes of how people not only, again, perceive the world around mm -hmm. and then express themselves. And again, this applies for everything. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. No, absolutely. But... Absolutely. So, all right. We've, we've run the gamut, at least on the backdrop the, the, or the foundation for why you do what you do. But let's talk a little bit now about the research that you're currently conducting, the direction that, that you're moving in. And also, I think because of what you do is so interesting and the, the, the measurement beyond QST with some of the brain imaging and those things, that's, that's stuff that is, is really intriguing to people. So if you would, let's dive into your current interests, maybe even some recent publications that, that you're particularly proud of and you think that, have, that are, are more impactful. And then maybe that'll give us an opportunity for me to interrupt and, and ask about some of the tools that you use to, to learn some of these things. Yeah, so, so one of the things really that right now in the lab we're very interested in is um, trying to find useful biomarkers that could basically identify individuals, um, in this case that may be either because of chronic pain, but really there are other, um, could be other things that put them at risk to have decline, functional decline earlier than they're, they're really supposed to. So. Mm -hmm. Really, um, I've used aging as a um, aging really biomarkers is, is really what we've been working with um, and on because in a relatively simple um, manner with, for example, in the case of MRI, MRIs collect much information, mm -hmm. um, but in very simple MRIs that people can get in a hospital in five minutes, um, if we can identify ooh, this individual is looking like they could basically use an intervention, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, I think it would be really helpful. It would be really impactful down the road. So I, we, could, we could spend, easily spend an entire episode talking about MRI and all the ways that that can be wielded. Um, and maybe we'll dabble with that in just a moment, but, but I want to circle back to, to some of the biomarkers that you're talking about, biomarkers of aging. What are, what are some, some major other than time, you know, <laughs> okay, well you are 70 as opposed to 45. Well, that's, right. yeah. How else, how else do you, uh, yeah. So I mean, aging is, is basically just <clears throat> getting old, right? So, you know, we, we are all aging as we speak. And so, speak um, for yourself, but, but really, yeah. And, and we have our chronological, so chronological age as a, um, a way to tell how long we've been alive, but mm -hmm. you know, our cells in our body, um, really have a different clock and, um, really actually there are differences across tissues even. So maybe your brain, maybe your, um, you know, really again, other, other systems, endocrine system, um, cardiovascular system, really muscle, they all have a clock that has been running. And basically, through a lot of research, has been shown that that clock could run faster, meaning you could have some accelerated aging, which, you know, it's the bad thing about the kind of running faster type of clock is that the cell is supposed to reach senescence or sort of cell death mm 
-hmm. at an earlier time point. And you say that's different for all types of tissue. And that's very different. That has been shown to be different for all kinds of tissue. Um, But for, you know, and and a lot of this work has been going on for a long time in the field of gerontology and aging because, again, there's been quite a lot of interest in this. But um, our work has really been more specific in relation to chronic pain as a potential accelerator of um, this aging processes. And are there individuals with chronic pain in particular that if we can identify them early on, then we can say, okay, how do we stop this, um, basically the faster trajectory? So if you can, if you can address the chronic pain, you can intervene and pump the brakes on, on the aging that it's causing or the acceleration of the aging that it's causing. Okay. So what are, what are some biomarkers that stand out that, um, that either you've found or that are of interest that, and, and also when you list these or when we talk about them, how important are they in aging? Because if you, you say that all, all tissues age differently, well, clearly my scalp ages faster than the rest of me. So does that mean that I have a shorter lifespan or is that maybe no. not as important, right? Yes, so, right. Yeah, so uh, I, I kind of knew the answer to that question, hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, so what, what are some of the biomarkers that stand out and, and how uh, integral are they to, to longevity? Let's just, we'll talk about longevity first because I think that's a little bit of a simpler approach. Yeah, and, and there's specific hallmarks of aging that have ident- been really identified in animals and um, I guess I wasn't prepared to go through all those. Yeah. Um, and mainly because not all those can be accurately measured in humans. Mm-hmm. So really, um, we have um, telomeres, which Dr. Sibyl works on actually here with respect to, to pain, uh, and epigenetics. And so those we can now get more into in humans. And, and you know, as, as you know, if we think about clinical translational sciences, um, you know, we do a lot of science in the animal arena, mm-hmm. and it takes a little bit of time to be able to get it into humans. And, and that's actually one of my interests is really how do we get the basic science knowledge moved into humans and really understand, you know, the same things that we can see in animals. Can we see them in, in humans to be able to make that translation? Yeah. Again, coming back from my um, neuroscience PhD in a basic science program, um, I think that was one of the biggest <laughs> and and just a um i guess a, a cliff's notes or a footnote for some of our listeners when we talk about basic science how is that different how is basic science so with biology different from what you're doing now yeah so so really there are many as you're saying the basic science is actually very broad and you can even do some basic science in humans for example um, but you have preclinical work and if we think about biological systems, how they can be broken down all the way to cells and to DNA, RNA. So all these different proteins and um, transcriptomics and, and really, you know, breaking apart pathways. And and you can, and I have a beautiful picture. Oh, well, let's, on... let's see if we can get Eric to find it. If, if you give him a description of it, we can, if he has it. But basically, but yeah, we where, where we can, you know, we can look at things um, in, for example, in basic science, you can mm-hmm. look at things in vitro, which are basically very controlled systems, you know, like in a an actual um, plate. Um, but then you can start moving up and then you can go into whole um, systems in, in basic science, such mm-hmm. as in a whole animal. Um, and, you know, and then from there you can 
go higher up in the vertebrate. Um, and you can go even in vertebrate. I mean, you could mm -hmm. study flies. You study um, nematodes, actually. So you kind of just peel back layers. It, basic science is f further down, farther down, further? I suppose it's figurative. Further down the rabbit hole in, in you know, peeling away the layers and complexities of the organism, right? So is that... Right. Is that right. a, a, and, but a, as you can imagine, right, like as you're peeling those things um, is one thing, but then to try to put them back together yeah. into, let's say, a whole human and sometimes even a whole vertebrate, mm -hmm. if that's a mouse or a rat, then the level of complexity you went to putting, you know, a cell all the way into an organism with the brain, a functioning brain, a functioning system, and then environment. And mm -hmm. so in animal studies, for example, it's it's really nice to be able to control the environment, mm -hmm. which in, in humans we can't. But then findings from there, how do they translate, you know, yeah. into then everybody that we know with different backgrounds and living in different neighborhoods and, you know, social sometimes things can be overly complex when you're trying to figure out what what makes it tick right, right. so i actually um that's interesting i have a friend of mine that uh, i was just speaking to the other day and she came through uh graduate school about the same time i did studying biomechanics and is now uh at the working in a preclinical environment and so she went from like you're talking about measuring how humans move looking at the, the whole thing, to doing the same thing with mice, but you know, performing surgery on the mice to elicit a change and then measuring how that change, you know, and even with some spinal cord stuff. But, there, but then I think to other classmates that, that I, you know, they're doing much more, I don't want to say basic physiology because it makes it sound for those that aren't familiar with the term, like it's not complex, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> But, you know, they, they may be looking at a, a, a single protein and how that is affected by some enzyme activity. And I, wow, that's great. And so what does that mean? And they'll tell me the next six stages from whatever they're looking at. And it's still on such a, 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 a small level mm -hmm. within the cell that from, from what I do, I, I can't translate that to... To, okay, well, how does that get, how will that affect me tomorrow? But with what you do, it sounds like you went from more of that to looking at the whole thing. And even if it's looking, for example, through MRI mm -hmm. to understand some of these phenotypes, picking specific characteristics and then using that to define these groups or characterize these groups a little bit. Right. And, and for example, I mean, uh, their MRI, you know, there's, there's, different types of MRIs, as you well know. Um, and so, you know, when you do these different types of MRI, you may be able to get at um, neuroinflammation and, and you can get a neuroinflammation from different points. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've been using MRI spectroscopy to actually be able to look at a couple of uh, metabolites. So just basically chemicals in the brain that we can measure reliably um, that gives us an idea of the uh, inflammation, immune uh, environment of the area in the brain. But then that's in one area of the brain, but then we also use a different modality, actually. Right? Um, so we've used with diffusion um, what's called naughty. It's so, but it, it, the bottom line is we can look at some neuroinflammatory processes. And so, for example, my colleague um, uses naughty in animals mm -hmm. to examine. I feel there's a joke here, but so... I'm going to let it go because this is a science podcast. <laughs> 
So um, what is what is what is, is NADI an acronym? Yes, yes. Neurite. It's, it's basically neurite um, orientation dispersion okay. um, index, okay. and so density dispersion index, and okay. it, it gives you an idea of. So you know the the, the neurons have their um, neurites that come out, and so they have their um, axon as well as their dendrites. Mm -hmm. And so this measure allows the um, to understand the geometry and uh, complexity of the neurites that come out of wow. um, the the neuron. Uh, and, and you know, and, and what we do is you look at it in tracks. So uh, you know, in, in different tracks. And so we have a recent publication. Um, well. <laughs> Fingers it's, crossed. It's, 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 yeah, it should be. Accepted. Okay. Okay. Um, and, you know, so, so we see some of these changes um, being different in people with pain versus without pain. Mm -hmm. um, some of it is actually in a sex dependent manner. So we see it in one sex and not the other. Um, but in specific tracts, for example, the hippocampus um, and, and other areas of the brain, that, you know, it, it's really fascinating because. Again, trying to, you know, we cannot get a neuron out of a person, mm -hmm. but to actually see how are generally these neurons built, mm -hmm. their architecture uh, in the brain. Um, and you can do it's, that through It's MRI. quite exciting. Yeah. Wow. And so you, you had actually mentioned different modalities. So multimodal imaging is a thing where you, you compare some of these modalities um, and look at different aspects. What are some of the other uh, what are the, some of the other modes of, of neuroimaging that you use? So um, obviously, I think you know we we do a lot of um, morphometric, which means really structure. Um, so gray matter, the brain is related; it's divided into gray matter, white matter. So the gray matter is more of the actual neuronal bodies; the 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 white matter being the um, communicating parts mm -hmm. of the um, the axon bundles that go and communicate the brain, all the different regions, mm -hmm. and that's why it appears um, white. And um, and as well as a cerebrospinal fluid, you have that there, which, for example, in, in cases of atrophy, aging, we have basically spaces and they could get larger, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and so we use um, both, again, things to look at gray matter, things to look at white matter, but then we have um, MR spectroscopy, and in particular, and I think you're, you're probably uh, very familiar with MR spectroscopy, um, also to get uh, neurotransmitters such as GABA, which is the, the main inhibitory neurotransmitter of the nervous system in the brain, where um, really puts a break on um, that inhibition, and, and actually we have another paper coming out in that, um, and, and looking at GABA and aging, and, and some some of the the things, the patterns that we see in relation to aging, and then some others that are more pain specific, um, and then you know of course those are things at rest. Um, we also do connectivity, so how brain regions talk to each other. It doesn't... I find that stuff so fascinating. Please, yeah. you can talk as long as you want about this, please. <laughs> so, so when we talk about functional connectivity, it doesn't actually, again, mean that, um, we, you know, these regions are actually connected. They're just functionally talking to each other at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we can look at those with a brain at rest. So without just people, you know, you sit there and how is your brain without any other um, things or activity tasks to be given? Mm -hmm. 
but then you can also give individuals something to do. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we can give them pain and see how their brain reacts to, to pain induction or, or giving people pain, but also cognitive tasks. Um, and so, you know, right now we're actually also looking at MRI spectroscopy um, and seeing how it changes with pain induction over Okay. Time so it's functional MRS. Sure. Are you are you inducing pain while they're being scanned? Yes. Okay. And what how, what how how would you do that? What are some ways that you do that? So I mean, without giving away, you know, the the, the big. You, all right. Let me ask you a different question. How are some ways that other researchers <laughs> induce pain while uh, while a participant is in the scanner? I mean, they're, they're basically many different ways and, and you can, you just, so we do it, um, honestly in the hand because we do look at areas that are related to hand processing in the brain and some of the sequences. So that's important, mm-hmm. uh, but also generally, cause that's an area that people don't feel pain. So, um, so, you know, on purpose, we look at there, um, but yeah, you can give individuals heat pain. You can give them cold pain. You can even, you know, get a, um, uh, touch type, you know, heavy filament that's plastic, but mm-hmm. actually uh, could be perceived as painful. Um, we've often poke them with it. Poke them with <laughs> right. it, and and we have the nice thing about those is that we have ones that are um, not painful, so they're very thin plastic, and so mm-hmm. that's the control to see, you know, it's because just sensory input, meaning just touching you, you're mm-hmm. also going to see like brain activation. Hurt, right? Exactly, yeah. okay. exactly. So there, so there are many different, I mean, there are many different paradigms that, that can be used. And we, have, uh, we have an episode coming up uh, for all of you listening in a little while where I'll have uh, our engineer and associate producer, who is also a lab manager within Price, Eric Weber. Uh, he'll be on, and he's actually going to talk about some of these ways that, that uh, might sound torturous, to people before they are participants in pain research, because that's that's I think that's one of the big question marks. When I when mm-hmm. I tell even even friends of mine, you know, spoiler alert, Dr. Cruz Almeida and I went to high school together. Um, <laughs> when I when I talk about some of our old classmates or talk to some of our old classmates about what we do now, and the mental images that they construct, you know, pain. It's like what, what you know we they I when they describe it back to me it sounds much more like torture than what we're doing. And so uh, I, I think that it's, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I think it's important that in a future episode, and this will happen soon, that we're going to circle back and actually talk about some of the ways that we do this. Um, but in the meantime, so, um, you know, in, in, in conclusion, I, I like to ask this question of, of our guests. And, and so you are, are no exception. You can take this from your specific interests within pain research or pain research in general. You're really hitting your stride right now as far as as far as what you're doing. You talk about, you know, recent publications, things that have been submitted that you you are expecting to be published soon. You have these promotions. Everything's going pretty well. So I I would hope that it's safe to assume and I'll put this out there that this will continue for some time. So let's fast forward. 10, 15 years. Where do you see pain research going in that time? Look into your crystal ball. Or, and this is another thing, where do you think it should go? Just you in, in, as an individual. Yeah, so, so really, I think 
a lot of the work, and, and this is what we're focusing a lot of efforts now, is, is really to understand the, the interaction of um, what we call cognitive processes, which is basically how pain is sculpted and how people perceive it overall um, in relation to pain over time in, in older individuals. And I think this is important for many reasons. It's important because there's uh, some evidence that um, chronic pain leads to cognitive decline as we get older. And, you know, I think it's really important to, to, to get to the bottom of that because, you know, if we can prevent, I mean, there's a huge, huge impact of dementia, Alzheimer's, um, and we have a, a large number. I mean, we're all going to get old. So I, I really, um, as far as my research, I really have a, a big focus on, on understanding better and getting a grasp at those mechanisms. What is happening? Where can we target it? Where can we avoid it? Um, from a more um, global perspective, you know, leadership perspective, actually, you know, my goal really is to start with, you know, so let's say in five years to have a, a Florida pain network where, um, you know, we're, we're a large state. We have a lot of different universities. We have a lot of um, universities where there are people that are interested in studying pain, but there's no actual infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And I think we have that here in Price and, and at the University of Florida with our history of, of pain research, really not from me, but from many others that came before me. Mm -hmm. And so I really think that trainees all throughout the state, just thinking back when I was at the University of Miami, my in the one lab doing pain research, the only lab, you know, I felt so lonely and just had to wait once a year to go to a conference to meet other people that were interested <laughs> in pain to, to really talk to others. Mm -hmm. And so supporting trainees, um, you know, and again, that idea. So, so that would be my goal in a few years to have a Florida pain um, network and, you know, support more mentees and, and really trainees in general, um, people that are interested but need a little bit of support to, to get more research going. Because this is very complex. Mm -hmm. So I can find it all. I cannot find all the answers. Probably all of us here cannot find the answers. We need more people involved to, to be able to make an impact. I really like that idea. And I, and I appreciate your, um, I guess, your interest and your passion for not only contributing all that you can, but your willingness to also, you know, if not pass the baton, prepare to, you know, if you don't have anybody else to continue on with what you're doing, then what good is it? You know, if, if you have to reinvent the wheel every time, you know, somebody retires, which I know you're a long way from, but, but yeah, yeah. well, well that, that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but supporting, supporting other people. And I, yeah. I think that's definitely has been, it's one of my passion. And, and I think that's also when you were asking me about roles you know why why do i pick these roles to to go um you know right now we just got another grant on to support underrepresented minorities um undergraduates you know and and i, I think really and as minority and under um uh, underrepresented minorities as well as disadvantaged mm -hmm. you know why because we need more people in science and and we need to get everybody that can and is passionate about it to do it and support it but it doesn't happen by itself they need a support system. They need role models. And that's really half of my goal uh, besides relieving pain, which is very, you know. That's um, admirable. That's, that's something. Hefty, but. Well, 
I think that we have, and you'd probably agree with me, we've left plenty on the table for another discussion. So I hope that, uh, that we can have you back at some point. But until then, thank you so much for sitting down and spending some time. And I'm sure this is going to be a, a pretty popular episode with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And, uh, of course, as always, a big thank you to Eric Weber on the ones and twos. He's over there making sure that the images and the sound and all that comes out right, making sure that every time you punch your microphone that, that we get really good sound quality on that. <laughs> and, uh, and then last of all, uh, Ray Lynch and uh, Ray Lynch Productions for allowing us the usage of uh, his wonderful music that I've actually been a fan of since I was in high school uh, for our theme music for this podcast. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram.